Capitalism is a form of economy that's been around for about 250 years. It's based on markets. It's based on producing things in industrial systems. And my argument is that this thing has a beginning, a middle and probably an end. We might be seeing the end in the 21st century because technology is changing the way the economy works. Hi, I'm Ellen Liebeter. You're listening to Think Digital Futures. And today, how capitalism, the very system we've based our lives on, is under threat by automation and technology. There's probably not much left in our day-to-day lives that hasn't been changed by technology. Think about the way you interact with people, how you spend your spare time, how you do your job. It's the last one that's the real kicker. Technology has made everything simpler, easier and cheaper when it comes to our lives. And the same can be applied to your job. We're on the cusp of artificial intelligence being able to do our jobs better than we can, which begs the question, what do humans do when all the jobs are gone? Will we be going from a vocational lifestyle to a vacational one? To make sense of it all, you'll hear from producer Shane Anderson. Hi. This episode is a conversation about change, because the economic structures as we know it, they're eroding, and something's got to take its place. Welcome to the world of post-capitalism. But first, we need to backtrack. We can't look at the future of work until we understand how we got to where we are now. We need to start with ordinary capitalism before (laughs) post-capitalism. It's a word we're familiar with, even if it's not something we think about that often. We live in a capitalist economy. Yeah, and we've grown up in this market-based society. It's totally normal for us to own private property. We buy and sell pretty much whatever we want, whenever we want. And the price of those things, a car, a house, goes up or down depending on what everyone else is doing with it. And we have money to buy these things because we have jobs. This is capitalism. But it hasn't always been this way. No, and this is where things get a little bit tricky. To help us figure out how we got to where we are, we needed a little help. Here's University of New South Wales economist Gigi Foster talking about all the ways technology has spurred on capitalism since the Industrial Revolution. And, believe it or not, it all started with a fence. A fence. A fence. In a field somewhere in England in the 1500s. Capitalism is a combination of a lot of different factors. And one of the biggest changes that kind of ignited the huge mobility and increase in in technological uh, understanding in Europe was enclosure, which sort of started basically in the 1500s. And this was where the, um, the people who used to wander the agricultural lands and the pastoral areas of the UK started to get kicked off of the land and then be poor because they couldn't make a living. So this created some uh, sort of an underclass of laborers who were free to potentially work in something. Isn't that the same medieval England where you had a lord who owned the land and peasants who worked the land? Yeah, well, this comes out of the feudal system, but these aren't peasants. These are workers. This is a new kind of class system of workers and landowners, 
or as Marxists call it, the proletariat and the bourgeoisie. Basically, it's the start of an economic stratification that, for many people, defines capitalism. Okay, so what do we do once we have a fence? Well, next we jump to the 1700s, to the start of the Industrial Revolution. You start thinking about uh, maybe the mid-1700s, people started to have technological breakthroughs, which seriously changed the way that production could happen. So you had the steam engine, that was probably the biggest ones. There was obviously a, you know, a huge number of inventions in terms of materials. So metals, um, steel came in about 1850-ish. Before that, you had you know improvements to windmill technology even um, in the 1700s. Once you had the electrical generator, which was a huge thing, it was able to power like the London Underground in the late 1800s. So we've got these great inventions going gangbusters in the UK, but it's not just the tech that is creating change. It's a combination of technology and politics that's driving this boom in productivity. So when we talk about the history of capitalism, it really is not just technology, but also labor mobility, labor availability, and institutions that supported the use of that technology in combination with that labor to generate more stuff out of less inputs. And that's basically what productivity is. What happens next is pretty big. If you could sum up the Industrial Revolution in one image, one symbol, it would be this. The factory. Really, first factories were in you know back in the 1800s, and they were a very different ball of wax. Um, they were the the workhouses, right? That you see that's in the, the Dickens workhouses, exactly. Dickensian, <laughs> yes, that's right. And 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 really, again, those factories were happening. Were were set up. It was the first attempt to make you know really really high level production processes, really efficient production processes. The factory is a constant, and it becomes more important as Western powers colonise the world during the 1800s and early 1900s. At this point, trade is only expanding. Soon, capitalism is enforced on every corner of the world, bringing all the things we take for granted, like sugar, tobacco and coffee, into the market. Does the factory itself change much? It gets bigger. Factories began to really mass-produce during the World Wars, as they had to keep making ammunition to supply all the conflicts. After the wars, the high level of production kept going, but instead of bullets, they're making toys, cars, phones. The economy as we know it is a direct result of this mass production. I mean, the things that we're using now to record this interview were, were the product of the steel and the machine tools and the, the electricity, the, the internal combustion engine, you know, the various things. I mean, you're wearing cotton, you know, the cotton gin as well. So many, many inventions over many generations have given rise to the products that we see and use today in our work. And this brings us to the present. Yes. Now we're up to the digital age, the computer. People think about computers as a special case, I suppose, because they're you know in your face a lot of the time. And certainly, if you look at the streets today compared to 20 years ago, everybody's on their phones, right? That's a huge difference just in terms of daily life. You have a lot of um, individuals having personal relations with technology that you just didn't have 20, 30 years ago. I suppose that's a that's a good example of one of the times in history when we've seen um, the machines take over, and and people have worried about that, you know, sequentially in different eras throughout the history of, of the Industrial Revolution. 
People thought the machines were taking over when the horse and cart were replaced by the car, or when the cotton gin was invented that could spin cotton faster than humans. And people were terrified of computers when they first came out. There was even a word for it, computer phobia. We're always scared of new things. So what's different about our fear now? Are the machines finally taking over for real this time? Well, in many ways, they already have. Remember this sound? This sound is now a relic, a sign of how swiftly the internet has transformed. The World Wide Web as we know it has only been around for about 20 years. Now, about half the global population, that's about 3.2 billion people, use the internet. In Australia, about 85% of us are plugged into the system. Journalist Paul Mason, an author of Post-Capitalism, A Guide to Our Future, reckons the internet is fundamentally changing the economy. Information technology is different to the arrival of the movies or the arrival of the car. Information technology makes itself cheaper and therefore makes all future technologies cheaper. If your listeners can imagine a kind of graph that falls off a cliff, so, you know, literally a collapsing graph of prices, that graph would be the price of silicon chips collapsed off a cliff, uh, the price of bandwidth, uh, you know, Wi-Fi, the, the price of hard drives. So modern anxiety about technology is coming from the speed at which this change is happening. Technology is getting cheaper and smarter at a rate that's hard to predict. Programmers and engineers are now making machines that can teach themselves new skills, which means the sky's the limit on what we can get artificial intelligence, or AI, to do. It's estimated that 5 million jobs are at risk of losing out to robots over the next 10 to 15 years. already seeing self-driving cars and trucks, so you can say goodbye to taxi drivers and truckies. AI can go through documents and find inconsistencies and transactions faster than lawyers can, so you can say goodbye to solicitors as well. Not even creativity is protected. You're listening now to a composition made by a computer program called Emily Howell. And this may come as a shock to you, but Emily has been writing music since the 90s. So if no job is protected from artificial intelligence, where does that leave us? You will find out after the break. Just, just, just words. words. Just words. Finding the line between free speech and protecting the vulnerable. You can't say or do anything anymore, otherwise you'll be dragged off to the law courts. Why is this? The pressing issue of our time. Just Words is an original 2SER series. This new podcast goes beyond the hype and headlines of our race discrimination laws and gets the true stories from those that have used 18C of the Racial Discrimination Act and those that have had it used against them. New episodes will be released every Monday, starting from February 27. To listen, just head to iTunes or your favourite podcast app and search for Just Words. Subscribe today. We've established that technology is disrupting jobs, and getting paid to work is kind of the cornerstone of capitalism. 
Think about the last time your pay was late. You couldn't buy anything, you can't pay your mortgage, you can't pay school fees. It's pretty stressful when you're the only one who has no money, but imagine if all of your friends, your family, your neighbours all had empty pockets because they didn't have a job. Society as we know it certainly wouldn't exist. What's the first question you ask someone when you meet them for the first time? Uh, after what's your name, it's what do you do? Of course, people can answer that however they like, but the usual answer people tell you is what they do for work. Work is intrinsically tied to your identity. How do we adapt psychologically to not having a job? Well, funnily enough, we're already seeing this in pockets of the globe. Paul Mason has seen the effects of no work in places like Greece and Spain, where the youth unemployment rate is as high as 50%. The interesting thing is, do people, do people fall apart under those conditions? No, what they try and do is they build new connections with each other based on the richness of having free time. They often form little collaborative creches, you know, for their kids, or sometimes even cafes where, like, sometimes literally it's all based on food donated. It's something Dr Elizabeth Humphreys echoes. She's optimistic that if we don't have a nine-to-five, we can focus on building a better society. Liz has a PhD in political economy and is a researcher with the Faculty of Arts and Social Sciences at the University of Technology, Sydney. How might the world be different if remuneration didn't follow work and we all engaged in work that was, I guess, to build society and not necessarily connected to pay. You could think of it as a permanent holiday. Think of all the books and movies you could catch up on. Although we've still got a problem. How do we afford to live? This is where the post-capitalist society comes in, only nobody is quite sure what that's going to look like. What you do hear being discussed is the UBI, or the Universal Basic Income. Like in its simplest form, everybody would get an amount of money whether they worked or not. I guess that's what's at the heart of it. And the struggle for some people is we shouldn't pay people if they don't work. The idea is this is a really easy, simple, clean way to alleviate poverty. And actually, we're likely to find that people will work when we have a society that doesn't allow people to be marginalised and slip into dire circumstances. But the UBI isn't just an idea for the future. In some parts of the world, it's already becoming a reality. Trials have started in Finland and other European nations are implementing pilot schemes. It's only a transition method, though. There is no way the state can subsidise our lifestyle for decades if nobody is paying taxes. Well, unless the robots who take our jobs pay taxes. What's more likely is that we will just do things for free. And that's what we're already seeing with much of our technology. Imagine society like this. There's a state paid for by taxation. So the market pays for the state. That's effectively what you have in Australia here, you know, welfare payments, healthcare. There should be a third sector. And that third sector is where free stuff is produced. Think about Wikipedia. Every one of your listeners probably use Wikipedia. Lots of firms, therefore, use Wikipedia. It doesn't appear on anybody's profit and loss account or their balance sheet. It's an invisible part of the economy, but it's a growing part because a lot of our software is also free. And increasing numbers of things we use, public goods, are effectively created collaboratively by us, and they're free. 
maybe we'll go back to trading cows and corn and roaming the land in a world without fences. As Gigi Foster said before, it takes a combination of technology and politics to drive economic change. The steam engine didn't change everything on its own, and neither did electricity. Any transition away from capitalism will happen alongside political change. Here's Liz Humphreys again. To move beyond capitalism, we need mass involvement of citizens all over the globe. And I don't think we can predict what that outcome would look like. But in the process of mass involvement in social movements and political movements, you actually bring that new world into being. I think that's true of history. And I don't think it would be any different in moving beyond capitalism. We're living in this upsurge of technological innovation, and it's really scary challenging something that has been familiar to us for so long. We will move beyond capitalism. Whether we destroy the planet before that happens is, a, is one question that people raise. There's that famous quote, it's easier to imagine the end of the world than the end of capitalism. But we did build fences and factories and an entire economic and political system. We can always reinvent the wheel and do it all again. Cities like Sydney with its enormous buildings and all its infrastructure, we can actually build a society that's that's better. The government who's built those buildings, ordinary workers with all their skills and all their collaboration, it's just about how those skills and collaboration and effort and resources and money is focused. And if we can't do it, maybe the robots will. Thanks to producer Shane Anderson for that story. You've been listening to Think Digital Futures, a show produced by 2SER in conjunction with the University of Technology, Sydney. You can find out more about the show at 2SER.com forward slash Think Digital Futures. I'm Ellen Leibeter. See you next week.